this, uh, this sermon does come with a disclaimer uh, that I got about three hours of sleep last night. Uh, my wife is out of town, and of course, my five-year-old decided that she was, uh, had to go to the bathroom in my bathroom, that she was cold and now needed a shirt, uh, that she was hungry, and then that she had a nightmare and needed to get in bed. So that's, uh, things can get dangerous when I'm really tired. I almost, I have a feeling like I have nothing to lose, so anything can happen. Um, Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Exodus chapter 5. We're in the, we're in the entire, uh, we're doing the entire chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, we always have the text on the screen. Uh, you can move if you need to see something better. Um, but let's pray before we start. God, I pray that even if my uh, mind is frail right now, that your word would be strong, that uh, you would give me the ability to, to communicate the message of your word clearly that you would build us up and break us down as you see fit through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1791, a uh, a young, quite young, early 20s, member of English Parliament named William Wilberforce uh, was bringing forward controversial legislation. Uh, He he was introducing a bill in Parliament to to ban the transatlantic slave trade, which at that time was at its absolute height. And uh, needless to say, there was a lot of talk about this. Now, approaching the vote, he received a letter, a letter from a guy who knew what it was to be one of the few people opposed to slavery in all of England, a guy named John Wesley, who uh, you may know as the founder of Methodism. I'll read you what he wrote to him. February 24th, 1791. Dear sir, Unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius against the world, Athanasius was a guy who was similarly brave, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy, that is the slave trade, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. And boy, was he right. John Wesley knew what it was to oppose slavery in England at that time. William Wilberforce had his reputation destroyed in the press, in the parliament. He was, this wasn't the age of the anonymous Twitter troll threatening you. It was a guy with a sword coming up to you and saying, let's go. That happened then multiple times and he was not a fighter. He was like five foot and a hundred pounds. Get this. He, uh, the, the first two times he brought it forward, it failed. But then in 1793, they thought it was going to pass. There was an opera opening down the street, and some of the anti-slavery MPs went. It failed by four votes. Four. That was, like, so discouraging. And all this time, he's facing, you know, uh, uh, mockery in the press, destruction of his reputation, physical threats. He brings it forward every single year for 20 years. He found out that Wesley was absolutely right. That any time you threaten bondage, any time you threaten the strongholds of the world, you are in for a fight. 
if we want to be children of God's kingdom, part of that means we are opposed to what he's opposed to. We are opposed to the ways that, that human dignity is destroyed. We are opposed to the way that, that, that we are opposed to be, people being held in bondage. And if we ever take any of that on, you're going to find out you're in for a fight. Whether it's the world's systems. Now, uh, I'm going to say this again so you don't mishear me. By world, I don't mean planet. When the, when the Bible says, you know, the evil of the world or something like that, it's not talking about planet world. It's not talking about the evil of the Great Barrier Reef. It's talking about the corrupt systems of the world. It, it, systems of the world where, quite literally, people get rich off of other people being in bondage, whether through slavery or addiction or human trafficking or whatever, right? That exists all over human history up into our moment now. We see how uh, it, throughout human societies, there's like a, people with power and money shape the laws, shape the system to personally benefit themselves and disadvantage others, right? That is bondage. Some of you guys have quite literally devoted your life, either professionally or, or in a volunteer way, to... to uh, to fighting that sort of injustice, that sort of bondage. And if you look at the, the past saints who have done so, it is not pleasant reading. Oscar Romero, Fannie Lou Hamer, Dr. King, Cesar Chavez, right? They were in for a fight, weren't they? If you want to be part of establishing a church, man, I have seen more... Weird stuff happened to people involved in church plants. We're particularized, so you don't have to worry about that. We're no longer officially a church plant. But no, in all seriousness, if you're going to set up an institution that is devoted to the preaching of the gospel, devoted to setting people free from spiritual bondage, guess what? Expect a fight. It is not going to be easy. There is going to be resistance. If there's bondage in your family, right? generation after generation of abuse or dysfunction or enmeshment or what have you, broken marriages. Man, you, you want to you wanna start seeing that bondage released? <laughs> like wear headgear. That's a fight. Not like fix your teeth headgear, like protective headgear. You are in for a fight if that's what you try to do, if you ever try and address the ways that that, that bondage exists in a family. Those of you who work with people who are in bondage to addiction or you've walked with someone, you know, <laughs> you ever notice how, how the problems come out of the woodwork, how you start facing opposition, how you're in for a fight, how it just doesn't go quiet and easy. And also, inside of yourself, when you're like, hey, I really want victory in this part of my life. When, when you've come to that point and said, I want victory in this part of my life. I want to be free from this problem. I want to give this to God. Super easy, right? Not that, no setbacks on that. No, no war within yourself. No temptation that comes out of nowhere. None of that, right? <laughs> 
no, you're in for a fight. Anytime you are going to touch and try and loosen the bondage that is everywhere, you are in for a fight. Now, I want to address something at the top. Is there, is there a danger in using like a battle metaphor in talking about like living for the kingdom, right? Because let's just be straight. There's lots of bad theology around spiritual warfare and that sort of thing. I remember several books growing, you know, when I was first a Christian that I was recommended to read. It is not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> and even worse, it's considered uncool to use battle metaphor. That's our real concern, right? But here's the thing. And also, in all seriousness, not, not to be jokey about it, some of you guys, like, I'm sure there's been abuse related to that battle metaphor. Anybody? No? Nobody? Okay. Well, you guys got away clean then. That's, that's lucky for you. Um, but here's the thing. I, just for those, if, if it is kind of like an issue, if you are kind of squirming like, oh, this sounds, this rhymes with something I didn't like. Okay. So, in Scripture, battle is like one of the most frequent metaphors. It's, it's all over the place. The battle belongs to the Lord. Put on the full armor of God. Christ triumphed over his enemies, right? That, that sort of thing. So the way, like something good being abused isn't corrected by not using it. Did that make sense? I'm not sure. That was a good sentence? Came out, comma, semicolon. All right. The way that you correct abuse is by rightly using it, not by not using it, all right? But there, there is a real danger here. There is a real danger that, that when we want to be children of the kingdom, we want to take on the bondage that is everywhere in our world, in our hearts, in our families, is that we don't even realize a fight's coming, right? Because we're just going about our workaday lives, and it can catch you unaware. And it can wear you out, too. It can make you want to quit if you're not aware that that's what's happening. You're like, hey, I've been at this for a couple of years trying to, trying to walk with this person out of addiction. They're still, they're still having relapses. You know, I haven't seen progress on this problem. And you're ready to tap out. You don't even realize that you're in a fight. You know, and, and, and there's another question. It's like, if God's on your side, shouldn't it just kind of like go well? That's kind of what Moses and Aaron, I think, were thinking in Exodus chapter 5. Because in, in Exodus chapter 4, right, they, they came back to Egypt, and they, the first thing God said to do, go, go, tell, go tell the elders of the Israelites that, that God's with you, and, and he's going to set them free. And, and they, they did, and they believed. And they were like, this is great. And so we see them stroll right in with, with, with backbone, with chutzpah. In, into, into Pharaoh's throne room in Exodus chapter 5. Look, look with me at verse 1. It says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. Now that is the word Yahweh there, the name Yahweh. The God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, I don't want it to be lost on us how gutsy, how impressive this is. Okay? Who's Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt? Basically nobodies. They have no power. They have no army. They got no nothing. Pharaoh is kind of a semi-divine being. It, just, I, I, there's a, a recreation of an Egyptian throne room at UPenn. I brought a picture of it for you. So you can, you can picture what they were seeing. All right? It's going to be there. There it is. 
Is that, is that pretty visible to everybody? Um, there are seats closer, but... Uh, <laughs> all right, so to give you an idea of scale, uh, first of all, like, you're, you're in a very beige world in Egypt, right? Like, like, you've never seen anything this ornate. All of this is designed to overawe you and project power. A human being is about that tall, okay? It's, it's huge. It, it, like, it, this is a high roof for us today. It would have been, you know, titanic for them. It's designed to make you feel small. So you're Moses and Aaron walking in in your dusty robes and your gray beards, you know. And there's Pharaoh sitting right about there in his glittering finery with a huge headdress and makeup. He, he doesn't even look like anybody you've ever seen. And he's surrounded by nobles who are similarly ornate. And oh yeah, his, his palace guard, a bunch of trained killers who could cut your head off like that at his word. There is no constitution. There are no human rights, by the way. So walking in there, you could be bidding life adieu if you get on the wrong side of Pharaoh. Yet... They roll right in there and deliver God's message. Let my people go. Um, let's see how Pharaoh responds. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So that, you could have just said no. But what he's really doing is he's disrespecting their God. When he says, I don't know him, I mean, never heard of him. Right? You know, it's like, oh, you released an album, never heard of it. <laughs> Meaning not worth noticing. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. They're not saying set us free. They're saying three day journey so we can go celebrate a religious uh, 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 festival to our God. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the, or the sword. Now, God never said, hey, I'm going to bring an invasion or a disease if you don't, if you don't do this. Uh, we're not sure exactly why they put that in there, but it would, it would jive well with Egyptian theology, right? Like, they're God, basically in all pagan religions, the gods really don't like you unless you make them happy. And if you fail to make them happy with the right things, uh, then, you know, disease or invasion or crop failure will come your way. And so they're actually appealing to Pharaoh's self-interest. Where do the Israelites live, guys? In Egypt, in the land of Goshen. A pestilence for them is a pestilence for Egypt. An invasion for them is an invasion of Egypt. So they're trying to be like, Pharaoh, in your own self-interest, let us go. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to, get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So he's like, hey, shouldn't you slaves be working? Why are you here asking me for days off? That's his response. After they leave, Pharaoh has an idea. Verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard 
to lying words. So, does everybody know what the straw is about? You've probably heard of this before. Okay. In, in ancient Egypt, what the, a lot of what the Israelites were doing was making bricks for the buildings. Okay, they were mud bricks, and uh, if you didn't put straw inside it, it would decay over time and, and crumble. But if you put straw inside it, it decomposes, releases gas, and keeps the brick firm, which is why Egyptian buildings are you know, so well-preserved, partly. And so instead of giving them straw, these, these enslaved people are supposed to, before their day of work starts making bricks, they're supposed to go find straw somewhere. It's impossible and not have your output reduced. It's, it's literally impossible, but it just highlights how much power Pharaoh has. Hey, just for asking, I'm going to make it worse. And no one can stop him. Verses 10 through 14. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Now, just, just real quick, uh, taskmasters are Egyptian overseers of the slaves. They are Egyptians. The foremen are actually Israelites who are in charge of like a smaller crew report up to the taskmasters. Making sense? Foremen are Israelites, task, taskmasters, Egyptians. Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So, they asked for three days off. A little bit of loosening of that bondage. What's the response? they got a fight on their hands, don't they? It does not go quietly. There is, there is a self-interest for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to keep them just how they are. And one thing that really complicates it for Moses is that not only is he not ready for this fight, the people are not ready for it. Look at verse 15. Then the foremen, remember those are Israelites, of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks." The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So it seems that the Israelites and these foremen in particular did not know why. This, this punishment was being laid down on them and they just found out why. It's because Moses went and asked. And so they turn on Moses. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The people don't want this fight. And Pharaoh's not going down without one. And we see that Moses, he was ready to do God's work. He went in there very boldly. 
But then look at verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses thought this could be a cakewalk. He thought he's going to go walk in there, say, hey, can we go? And Pharaoh's going to be like, sure, bud. That's what Moses was expecting. That's not what happens. He's instead got a fight on his hands. And he wasn't ready for it. He wasn't expecting it. But the good news is that God was. Look at, look at just the one verse from chapter 6. It says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And we'll pick all that up, you know, next week and whatnot. But God's like, yeah, this is the plan. You're going to see. I told you this back in chapter 4, Moses. Remember that? <laughs> I said, you're going to ask Pharaoh to let you go. He's going to say, no, there's going to be a fight. We got a fight on our hands. These things don't go away quiet. The message to Moses, the message to, the, to the, the people, the message to God's people always is that whenever you take on the bondage that is in the world, in yourself, what have you, a fight is going to be on your hands. But keep fighting because God is with you. Keep fighting because God is with you. Now, we first of all have to recognize that we're in one. When Sharon and I, uh, like the first year of the church plant, we were fighting like we had never fought before. Like it was totally unprecedented. Neither of us are agreeable, but this was ridiculous. <laughs> okay? And there's one time where like Sherrod like screamed at me, which she had not done in the entire time I had known her. And we both looked at each other after she did it. And we were like, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, do you think we're under attack, spiritually speaking? I was like, I think so. Right? And like we're just getting it then, when we're months and months in, you need to recognize that you're in a fight. If you're going to be at all faithful to being a child of the kingdom, to being about what God is about, to setting those bonds loose, you're in for a fight. You need to recognize that you're in one. Some of you guys just realized you were. You're like, oh, that's what's been going on. Yeah. All right. And now I'm going to get spooky on you. We have an opponent, three to be exact, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I weirded out some of you. I'm going to explain what those mean. The world, as I said, does not refer to the planet world. It also doesn't refer to the population of the world, even though that's two definitions you'll find in the Bible. When, when the Bible talks about the corruption of the world, it's talking about those systems, right? The, the, uh, the Bible scholar and theologian Justo Gonzalez said that the world is satanically ordered, okay? This dynamic where we have widespread corruption, we have wealth off of enslavement and addiction, th those sorts of things, right? That is, that, is a, that is a satanic world order. So one of our opponents is the world. The very mechanisms that lashed out at William Wilberforce when he was trying to end slavery, trying to take some territory for the kingdom. Now, the flesh does not mean the body. So the world, the flesh, the devil, the flesh does not mean the body. It can, the Greek word sarx can mean the physical body, but in the, in the Bible, when it talks negatively about the flesh, it's not talking about your physical body, it's talking about the part of you, the part of me, 
that is resistant to God, that is opposed to God, that is, that is wrapped in bondage. Does that make sense? So that's our second opponent. And the third is the devil, and that's the spookiest of all. Um, I get it. The modern mind, which we all have, is against, it rejects any notion of like a creepy monster with tail and horns and all that sort of thing. Well, which is good because that's, that's not in the Bible. All right. So some of you guys were raised like in, in, in some traditions, it's like, you know, here's an opening prayer to Satan. Satan, we're going to get you. Um, you know, and in closing, Satan, right? Like you spent a lot of time on, on the devil and, uh, and have all sorts of images of, of uh, uh, bad Christian books and movies about, you know. And by the way, Dante's not a bad Christian book. That's an excellent one. But that's where we get most of our image of, of what the devil looks like, with the horns and all that stuff. It's not in the Bible. The Bible gives no physical description of the devil. doesn't even give a name to the devil. There is no, like, Satan, we'll get to it. Actually, it's a Greek word that just means opponent. There is no proper noun for that being in the Bible. Another thing it doesn't say in the Bible, that he's in hell or from hell. It also does not say that he is like God's equal opposite. Like you have God, and then, you know, kind of his, his counterpart, the yin to his yang is the devil. That's not in the Bible either. Um, it does not say that he used to be in heaven. Not in the Bible, guys. If you, you think that that's there, please just show me. Maybe you, you know better than I, but I've looked. Not there. There's a lot of mystery. But here's what we do know, that that name... Satan, or Satanos, the opponent, is an apt description of his activity. It seems that he wants to be against whatever God's people are doing, right? If, 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 if God wants a person to be free, he wants them bound. God is a creator of life, and he brings destruction of life. God endows all human beings with dignity by benefit of being in his image. And we see the work of Satan everywhere in that image being denigrated through abuse, through slavery, through all sorts of, all sorts of ways. And, and then you're like, oh, yeah, that tracks actually. Now that I think about it, his work is everywhere. And that whole thing about the world being satanically ordered makes more sense, right? We face a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we're not aware of it, it is going to catch us by surprise. It is going to wear us out. It is going to make us tap out. You have struggled with bondage in your own life. You don't understand why God hasn't set you free from it. And not once have you recognized that you are in a fight. You are in a fight against your own flesh. You're in a fight against the systems of the world and the power of the devil. Keep fighting. God is with you. There's bondage in your family, in your marriage. You've been at it, man. You have been trying. But not once have you recognized that you're also in a battle. And it's wearing you out. You're working with people who are you know, kind of getting chewed up and spit out by the world. A lot of you guys do stuff like that. It wears you out. 
Do you think for one second that the enemy wants you to help those people? Do you think that's going to go quietly? You're going to face no resistance there? Of course you are. I'm not trying to make you scared, maybe a little, at least aware of what we're in and that God is with you. Listen, if we are to be faithful children of Christ's kingdom, we're going to face a battle. God is not going to make the battle easy, but he will make you a fighter. I'm currently reading a book called I Will Not Fear. It's by a woman named Melba Patillo. She's still with us, actually. And uh, some of you guys might have heard of her. She's actually one of the Little Rock 116. And if you are like, wait, isn't it the Little Rock 9? No, actually, it was the Little Rock 116. There were, after the Brown versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision to declare segregation unconstitutional, uh, one of the, you know, they were going to integrate Little Rock, Arkansas which had a very segregated school system, and there were 116 African-American students that were going to desegregate Central High. 116. And then the threats started coming from the Klan and from their employers saying, hey, if your kid goes to that school, you're going to lose your job. And it was whittled down from 116 to just nine. Melba Patillo was one of those. She describes growing up in, in Little Rock that at night they would actually close their blinds so that no light was visible because they feared the Klan. They would keep their volume down. It was very much like living in apartheid South Africa or as a Jew in Nazi Germany. It was right out of that. Now Melba was not only an ambitious student who was excited about the chance to go to Central High that had all these facilities. Actually, she did go on to like earn her PhD and stuff, become a journalist, a formidable woman. Uh, but she also had great faith in Jesus. Um, her grandmother discipled her growing up. And one of the best bits of theology I've ever heard, her grandmother explained, said, look, why do I have you on my refrigerator, a picture of you on my refrigerator? Because you love me. She says, look, you are on God's refrigerator. <laughs> she held that with her. And she saw desegregation of Central High as God's work. She felt quite literally called to it. And so she and those eight other students went. The first day that she was there, there was a crowd around the building. She was walking up to the school. And she was trying to, like, see over people to see what was going on. And somebody turned around and said, we've got one right here. We can hang her. She didn't need to hear another word. She hightailed it, her and her mom. And they were chased by men quite literally holding ropes. And she says, you know, my grandma always told me, when you are in need, just call out on God. So as she's running, she's calling out on God. God, help us. She's like, I can't explain it. The guy's chasing us tripped. And we got in the car and drove away just in time. The next day, well, not the next day, but like a few days later, you know, the National Guard and the 101st Airborne were called in to escort the Little Rock Nine to the school. Actually, I have a picture of it. There is Melba right there. On that first day, she attended Central, uh, Central High School. There was an angry mob 
around the building the entire day. They didn't know how they were going to get them out at the end of the day. Melba put her ear up to a door where, where some of the law enforcement people and the, the people in charge were trying to figure it out. She heard one of them say, maybe if we give the mob one, they'll let the other eight go. They didn't go through with that, of course, but it gives you an idea of what she had to deal with. And it wasn't just those first two days. Every day, she was pushed from behind. She was kicked. She was insulted to her face. One time, a, a boy came up and shot her in the face with a squirt gun. She's like, that's mature, and it was acid. And it damaged her vision. She almost lost her eyesight. She's never fully recovered from it. There was a poster of her face, a wanted poster, $10,000, dead or alive, posted by the Klan. If she retaliated in any way, she would be expelled and they would win. How many of you guys think that you could deal with that? How did she do it? She said that one day she realized that a warrior had woken up inside of her. It was a voice inside her that knew that she was doing what God wanted. And so she would quite literally pray. She said one time when she was in the bathroom stall and girls were throwing bits of lighted on fire pieces of paper, that she started to pray out loud. And when, and when she would be insulted to her face and be called an ugly you-know-what, I loved this. She said, I would, I, she had a lot of scripture memorized and she would recite to herself either out loud or, or, or inside the, the 23rd Psalm and then she'd give herself five compliments. She'd say, she'd say, Melba, you're not ugly. You got a cute face and a great ponytail. <laughs> you know? And that is how she fought all year. And she actually graduated from that high school and for the rest of her life. It, God did not take away the fight. He made her a fighter. But she knew what it was. She knew that this was not going to go quietly. She knew that she was stepping on Satan's territory. If we are going to be children of the kingdom, if we are going to be about God's work, if we are going to be about loosening bondage that is everywhere, expect a fight. We need to wake up to this. And most of all, we need to rely on God. We do not have the, the strength to deal with this on our own. But the good news is that God is with us. He'll make us fighters. Please pray with me. God, I, I pray that we would wake up, that we would not just go about our lives unaware that we face opposition, or that we would not be so cowardly that we would avoid opposition but that instead, through your word, through your spirit, through your sacrament, and through your grace, you would make us courageous for your kingdom, that we would be willing to take on this fight as our Lord Jesus took on the powers of darkness 2,000 years ago. Be with us, God. Amen.